You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll turn our attention to the verses 11 to 15, 24 to 28, where it speaks about the work of our Lord Jesus Christ as the great mediator of his people. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Then we move down to verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Let's find the reading of God's holy word. Let's also this afternoon turn to the Belgic Confession. Page 460, 461, Article 26. It's kind of a forgotten article of the Belgian Confession. But it also has a bearing on Lord's Day 6 and what we are dealing with together this afternoon. Article 26, page 460 and 61. Christ's intercession, it's called. And there we read and confess, we believe that we have no access to God except through the only mediator and advocate Jesus Christ, the righteous. For this purpose he became man, uniting together the divine and human nature that we men might not be barred, but have access to the divine majesty. This mediator, however, whom the Father has ordained between himself and us should not frighten us by his greatness, so that we look for another according to our fancy. There is no creature in heaven or on earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ. 
though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking the form of man and of a servant for us, and was made like his brethren in every respect. If therefore we had to look for another intercessor, could we find one who loves us more than he who laid down his life for us, even while we were his enemies? If we had to look for one who has authority and power, who has more than he who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and who has all authority in heaven and on earth, Moreover, who will be heard more readily than God's own well-beloved Son? Therefore, it was pure lack of trust which introduced the custom of dishonoring the saints rather than honoring them, doing what they themselves never did nor required. On the contrary, they constantly rejected such honor according to their duty as appears from their writings. Here one ought not to bring in our unworthiness For it is not a question of offering our prayers on the basis of our own worthiness, but only on the basis of the excellence and worthiness of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is ours by faith. Therefore, with good reason to take away from us this foolish fear, or rather distrust, the author of Hebrews says to us that Jesus Christ was made like his brethren in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make expiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Further to encourage us more to go to him, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The same letter says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Also Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What more is needed? Christ himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Why should we look For another advocate, it has pleased God to give us his son as our advocate. Let us then not leave him for another, or even look for another, without ever finding one. For when God gave him to us, he knew very well that we were sinners. In conclusion, according to the command of Christ, we call upon the Heavenly Father through Christ, our only mediator as We are taught in the Lord's Prayer. We rest assured that we shall obtain all we ask of the Father in his name. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in the first part of Lord's Day 6, beginning at question and answer 16. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man, 
because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sin should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll save the rest of the answer for next Sunday morning, the Lord's willing. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a process in this life called rediscovery. And actually it's kind of neat. And it applies to many different kinds of things. It can apply to a home that you live in as you rummage about in a storage cupboard and pull out all sorts of old things that you haven't seen for a long time or that you begin to reminisce about. It can apply to old letters bundled up and all but forgotten only to take on new life when you untie them, open them up and read them again. It can also apply to a visit to a place where you were born and spent your early years. In short, there is so much to discover as well as to rediscover in this life. Yes, and the same thing applies to all that all but forgotten special day that happened last week, Tuesday. No, I'm not talking about Halloween. No one forgets about it. The world doesn't let us. But rather, I'm thinking about Reformation Day, about that day on which we, as the people of God, should be thinking about and reflecting on the great things that God did in his church so many years ago, as well as the great things that he is still doing today. Truly, when we give some real attention to Reformation Day, we'll launch out, as it were, on a voyage of rediscovery. For one, you will see that the Reformation and the work of the great reformers, Luther, Calvin, Swingley, Knox, and all the rest, was actually a matter of rediscovery. As a result of numerous developments in the medieval church, so many things had become lost, forgotten, discarded. The church had lost touch with its biblical, moral, and doctrinal roots. But you can see that that change with the rise of reform and reformation. For example, the central biblical teaching of justification by faith alone was rediscovered. Another thing that was rediscovered was the pivotal importance of living by grace alone. As well, there was the matter of listening to the scriptures alone. And then, too, there was the rediscovery of the office of all believers. You see, beloved, all sorts of old treasures were unearthened, dusted off, and embraced anew. Oh, and not to be forgotten in all of this is also the subject of Lord's Day 6, which is the rediscovery that salvation is through Christ alone.
that he's the only mediator of God's people. The only real answer to our fallen condition. The only true bridge that connects us to God the Father again. Indeed he is, and that's also the theme of our sermon this afternoon, our astonishing mediator. And to see that, we're going to take note of the uniqueness of his person, first of all. Secondly, something about the nature of his work. And then finally, the glory of his office. Well, beloved, whenever we think of our Lord Jesus Christ as mediator, a good place to begin is with Moses and the people of Israel. Specifically, I'm thinking of an incident that you find in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. It took place at Mount Sinai. There Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God, and and once there, God reminded Moses of everything that he had done to Egypt and the Egyptians, and he also reminded him of the fact that he wanted to turn the people of Israel into his most treasured possession on earth. And in addition, the Lord said that he was going to come to the people in a dense cloud and meet with them. However, he also said that before this could happen, they needed to consecrate themselves, which meant they needed to wash themselves as well as abstain from sexual relations. And that's apparently what they did. Well, then three days later, God came. He came, it says, in thunder and lightning. He came with the sound of a very loud trumpet blast. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because, as it says, the the Lord descended on it in fire. God himself came to the top of Mount Sinai. Hard to imagine. I don't even think Cecil B. DeMille could repeat that one accurately. It defies, to some extent, our imagination, but yet it happened. But you know, after God came down, Moses went up. And the people were then warned that they shouldn't come too close to the mountain. They they had to stay a proper distance away. And now it seems that to the people that wasn't a problem. As a matter of fact, they had no intention of going any closer. As it was, they were already scared stiff. For we're told in verse 18 of chapter 20, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. But not only did they stay at a distance, they also said something to Moses, something rather revealing. They said to him, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. So what were the people really saying to Moses? What did they really want Moses to do? Well, they wanted him to act as their mediator, as their go-between, as their bridge to the Almighty. 
It seems that instinctively the people of Israel understood that, that here is, is somewhere we can't go. We shouldn't go. We dare not go. There's no way that we can approach this God and get really chummy with him. At one time that may have been possible. But now with the entrance of sin and rebellion into the world, they knew things weren't as they were before. They needed a mediator. Yes, and the people realized it then, and, and you know, later on they realized it as well. Because you see, you take that whole sacrificial system in Israel, and really that whole sacrificial system is based on the premise that you can't just go to God. You can't just march in and say, here I am. Let's do business. You can't do it because you realize that this God is utterly holy. And we are utterly sinful by nature. There is this chasm that separates us, that keeps us apart. It's as if there's either this huge hole or there is this high wall that stands between us. And so the people kept their distance and they relied upon the priests and the high priest as Moses mediated for them while he lived. So the priests and the high priest mediated for them later on. And you know, that may have sufficed for a time. But in the long run, the people knew as well that actually this wasn't really very ideal. They longed for this distance, this gap, this bridge, this gulf to go away. Yes, and because of all this, a chapter like Isaiah 53 begins to play such a prominent role in their faith and in their hope. For what actually does God promise in Isaiah 53 Actually, he promises the coming of a great, spectacular, unimaginable mediator. It promises that one day God is going to send his special suffering servant. One day he's going to come. And he's going to take all of our infirmities, all of our problems, all of our misdeeds upon himself. One day he would carry our sorrows and and be smitten, afflicted, pierced, and, and crushed by them. And one day his sacrifice would bring peace and reconciliation and healing. Oh, and how the people yearned for the day when the breach would be healed by the coming of the perfect mediator. Then they could go home again. They'd have access again. They could walk into, as it were, the heavenly presence and know that they were being embraced. They could live in love and favor and blessing again. 
You know, that's what they looked forward to. That's what they longed for. Remember Anna, Simeon in the temple? What were they doing there? Scripture says they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were waiting for all of their hopes and their dreams to be realized in the coming of God's great mediator. But oh, when he came, what a surprise he turned out to be. For who understood that when he came, he would come as God and man? Perhaps the people knew that when he came, he would do so as a true and righteous man. They, they probably understood, as Lord's Day 6, question and answer 16 puts it, that, that when he comes, he will need to come as a true man, seeing this is a principle of justice. The same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. And they would probably have figured out too that he would need to be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. But who of them reckoned with the fact that, that when he came, he would also come as God? I don't think anyone anticipated or predicted that. Of course, later on they would but before they had this happened, they were blind to this need. But you know, beloved, our God and Father was not. And here again, we come face to face with another rediscovery of the great Reformation era, and that is the, the absolute sovereignty of God when it comes to our salvation. It strikes me that these days, if you listen and read... And look around. It's kind of popular to say that salvation is a joint venture. It's a combined effort. God does something, we do something. And there's all this talk about the need for us people to exercise our free wills. And, and when we finally exercise our wills and make a choice for God, then it's as if God's shackles are suddenly unloosened and He can come and help us. First, we of ourselves need to turn to Him. And then finally, God can turn to us. But you know, that's not what the Scriptures teach. They teach there is no one righteous. They teach that by nature we are dead in sin and trespass. Why does it take so long for the message of Romans 3 and Ephesians 2 to penetrate our sick skulls and our conceited hearts? The reality is that when it comes to salvation, it's God who seizes the initiative. It's God who supplies the answer. It's God who in Jesus Christ seizes the moment. For he is the one who sends us a Savior who is complete and perfect in every respect. 
And he fashions a solution for our sinful predicament that is beyond our comprehension, much less our ability to create. He says Jesus is man and God. And indeed, the one whom he sends should take our breath away. The Apostle Paul calls him God's incomparable gift. In the midst of an often busy and hectic life, it's therapeutic to stop and to reflect on the nature of this gift. Reflect deeply on just what and who God has given you in your incomparable Savior, Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the uniqueness of his person. But also something else. Rejoice in the work that he came to do as your mediator. And what's the nature of that work? Well, it's mentioned and it's embedded in the words of Lord's Day 6. Look at the answer 16 and 17 again. Notice the verb. They, the verbs tell the story. First, there is payment for sin. Answer 16 says, he must be true man because the justice of God requires the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. And in addition, it goes on to say that one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Notice the stress on payment. The true mediator has to pay, pay, and pay. Now, where did the catechism get that from? Why, from the Holy Scriptures. If you look, for example, once again at Isaiah 53, you will see it there in all of its clarity. But also read more, for example, from this letter to the Hebrews that we've read a little from this afternoon. More than any Scripture letter, this is the letter that tells us about our mediator. And then when it does, what does it say? It says the business of being a mediator is all about payment. And it mentions how in the Old Testament the high priest and all the priests under him offered sacrifices as payments day after day, week after week, month after month, decade after decade, century after century, they offered. Animals died by the thousands and the tens of thousands. Blood flowed like a river. Jerusalem stank like an abattoir. But then Jesus Christ came. And what happened? The river of blood stopped flowing. And instead of offering up the bulls, the blood of bulls and goats, Christ offered up his very own person. He paid for the sins of his people himself. 
Hebrews 7 puts it like this. He sacrificed for sins once for all when he offered up himself. His one sacrifice, the sacrifice of his, his own body, blood and life, did it all. It changed everything. It changed everything for him and it changed everything for us. Finally, the real, lasting, complete, and final payment was made to God. There was redemption through His blood. And so, beloved, we say that payment represents the first part of His mediatorial work, but you know there's also another part, and it's called bearing. Bearing the wrath. The Catechism in Answer 17 speaks about the fact that he must be true God, so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. You know, sin has consequences. One of the consequences of sin is death, the fact that we all die. Another consequence is wrath, the wrath of a holy God. When it comes to sin, our God is a consuming fire. And you know, beloved, that's not just Old Testament language, it's New Testament language as well. Think of Hebrews 12 verse 29 about Worshipping God with awe and reverence for our God is a consuming fire. And at the same time, if you think of it, it's not idle language either. Think of what God did to Noah's world. What he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. To Egypt. And to so much more. Our God not only hates sin, he also punishes it. It becomes the object of his divine displeasure, of his holy anger, of his great wrath. And so when the great mediator comes, if he's going to be successful, he has to deal with his wrath of God. Somehow he has to tackle it and diffuse it and take it away. But how's he going to do that? There's only one way. His human nature needs the sustaining power of his divine nature. You know, if he were only man, he would be pulverized by the wrath of God. There would be nothing left of him at all. And of course, by extension, that means there would be nothing left of us either. Because you see, if he dies, we die. If he flounders, we flounder. If he fails, we fail. Our fate is tied to his fate. Everything hangs in the balance. But yet thankfully it didn't hang there for long. 
For the sin and the wrath that Christ bears in his human nature, he can bear. And why? Because there is now this this indescribable power of his divine nature as well. That's what enables him to bear the burden. More accurately, it enables him to bear our burden. And the wrath that all of us have earned and deserved. Thanks to the work of our great mediator, the wrath of God is stilled. And all of that, beloved, represents something, a great, unbelievable something. But you know, there's also more. There's more to his work than payment and diffusing the wrath. There's also the work of purchase and restoration. Answer 17 of the Catechism says, He must be true God so that He might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Just what exactly did we lose when Adam fell? We lost our righteousness And we lost our life. Instead of remaining righteous, we became defiled, polluted, and immersed in sin. Instead of receiving the gift of life, we received the sentence and the curse of death. And it resulted in ruined lives and no future. But then along comes our mediator, Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He undertakes the great work of rebuilding, reclaiming, and restoring. By the sacrifice of his body and the power of his divinity, he makes the impossible possible. He creates a way back and up to God a way back into the favor and into the bosom of God the Father. Yes, Jesus Christ makes a way. By the sacrifice of his humanity, I say it again, and the power of his divinity, he makes a way. And how that should fill us with a deep sense and an abiding sense of gratitude? Sometimes, you know, the question's asked, what really is it that motivates and drives Christians? What is it that compels us and propels us to live the Christian life? And then some people say, well, it's the fear of hell. All these people are afraid they're going to go to hell. That's why they work so hard and they try so hard. Or otherwise, the story is, well, the reason why these people work so hard is because they know that the more they work, the more points they earn with God. It's some like going to Safeway or or save on foods. And the more you buy, the more points you earn and the more rewards you get in the end. And they say salvation's like that. The more you do for God, the more you earn. That's why they're so zealous. But beloved, there's only, if you think of it, only one real and true 
motivator in the Christian life, there isn't any other, and that one motivator is thankfulness. We do what we do and we live as we live because our hearts are filled with a deep and abiding sense of thankfulness and gratitude to God. We've come face to face with the depths of our sins and the wrath of God. And we have seen God's answer to our need in His Son. And when you see the answer in Christ, all you can do is give praise and adoration and say, here I am, Lord. Use me. Who would not want to do the will of such a father? Who would not want to bring glory to such a son. And so, beloved, the son opens up a new and living way. And he not only opens it up, but he also keeps it open. And he does that by his intercessory work. We've read together Article 26 of the Belgian Confession. And you know, there you make another discovery. Or should I say rediscovery? You rediscover, and that's also what the Reformation rediscovered, was the greatness of this one single solitary mediator. We have a priest forever and ever after the order of Melchizedek. We have a priest who who always lives, it says, to make intercession for us. A plea, uh, we have a priest who never stops speaking to the Father on our behalf. In the midst of all kinds of needs and situations, are you sick? Are you tempted? Are you weak? Are you sorrowful? Are you in trouble? Are you in temptation? This priest intercedes in all of those situations. Sometimes in this life we come into a real crisis and we work and come through the crisis and suddenly the sun begins to shine and the days are bright again. And we wonder how we made it through. Because we sense it really wasn't us. Something else. And we think of the Holy Spirit, and that's that's true. But do we also think of Jesus Christ, who's interceding for us every day, putting the needs of the children before the Father, applying His perfect redeeming work to them. It's their well-being. That's what Christ does. And because He does it, and He does it so well, we don't need anyone else. 
That was the trouble of the church in the 14th, 15th, 16th century. It was saying really to the people when you went through all the varnish and all the gobbledygook, it was really saying to the people, what you need is is more than Jesus Christ. You need some extra insurance. You need some more mediators. So in addition to Jesus, why not latch on to Mary? And what about Joseph? They surely have a special place in the pantheon of God. And what about Paul and Peter and John and James and all the rest and all those other people in God's great hall of fame? Get them to plead your case as well. Then you really have insurance. Eternal. Eternity. Insurance. But is that really necessary? The Belgian Confession asks, it asks us these pointed and pertinent questions. If, therefore, we had to look for another intercessor, could we find one who loves us more than he who laid down his life for us while we were even his enemies? And if we had to look for one who has authority and power, who has more than the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father? And moreover, who will be heard more readily than God's own well-beloved Son? Rhetorical questions. Isn't the answer obvious? We need no one else but Jesus Christ, man and God, the perfect mediator and the eternal high priest. And so, beloved, let's, also in this coming week, let's give him his due. Together with the great reformers, let us confess, we believe that we have no access to God except through the only mediator and advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Truly, he is our all in all. And besides him, we need or want No other. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.